I hope you were able to see yourself in the throne room. Adoring this great king, our savior. Wow. As I've heard many times, I feel like we've already had church. We could probably go home. But I did prepare a message. So we're not. Wow. I hope uh, all of you got the notes. They were prepared and hopefully available to you as you came in. The message today is really called, titled, uh, Humility is God's Path to Exaltation. Over the past uh, nine weeks, we've had the privilege of looking at the five E's or the five divine purposes of God's church. The first E of our series focused on what I think is the primary goal was E was exaltation. We are here to exalt Christ. That's why we're here. But the other four E's support that E and also have as their primary focus exaltation as they in evangelize as they unfold as they equip as they enlist all of them are designed to increase the amount of people and the amount of praise that our Lord Jesus will receive so by design we began our series with exaltation and we're going to conclude our series, series with the topic of exalting Christ so turn with me if you would to the second chapter of Philippians And we're going to read beginning at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we open this incredible passage that describes the amazingness of our Savior, King Jesus, I pray that this morning you would let this word come alive to your people, that you would remove me from the scene and let your voice be heard so that each person here would hear that still small voice from you telling them this is the way, walk ye in it, and that we would surrender our lives and submit in humility just like Jesus to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the past uh, week, we've talked about uh, the five E's, and this morning I want to talk about two aspects of this thing called exalting. From verses 5 to 8, we're going to talk about the humility of Christ, which is not just amazing, it's our model. And two, the exaltation of Christ, what God has done as a result of Christ's humility. So let's just jump in and hear what God would tell us from these verses. In verse 5, we see the first thing that Paul starts to address is the attitude of the believer. So why is Paul talking about attitude? Isn't that a little bit like meddling? What we think is kind of between us and us. They don't, we might smile and shake hands and say good to see you, but in our heart we're actually saying something else. You know, our attitudes are incredibly important. 
And Paul tells us this and reinforces this and says that we need to manage this thing called our attitude. Now, what is an attitude? Well, it's a settled or determined way of thinking about something or feeling about something or someone. It's commonly used as your attitude of how you think about, how you feel about a particular person, an event, or maybe how you look at a set of circumstances like maybe having your truck stuck in the sand. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like whether you see the glass of life as half full or half empty. Which are you? See, usually each one of us takes one of those two approaches, half full or half empty, but I've heard that engineers take this approach. They say it's neither the glass is simply twice as big as it needs to be. <laughs> no matter. You have a viewpoint. And God tells us that our attitude is very important. And it will affect our entire approach to life. It colors how we think about life and about people and how you see and do everything. Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is here telling us the importance of our attitude in this Christian life. Saying that every believer's mindset is important because it will shape how we live our lives. See, mindset, attitude, what is this? Well, the, the word attitude really came from the French, and it really meant the pose or posture of a model and we incorporated into English as attitude, it meant the posture or the lean of our mind. Which way do we lean when we think about something? Are circumstances naturally bad? Are people actually out to get us? And that's how we deal with everyone? What do they want? And so everything we see, whether it's a good gift or something, we're suspicious. That's part of our attitude. And what did Jesus wants us to do is have an attitude like him so as we look at this governing our attitude becomes critically important because how our attitude goes so goes our life there's a paragraph written by Chuck Swindoll about attitude that I liked and many have seen it but I think it's important what he said was this the longer I live the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than the facts, more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstance, than failures, than successes, than what other people think about me or say or do. It's more important than appearance or giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we all have a choice every day regarding what attitude we will embrace. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in certain ways. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me, but 90% on how I react to it. And so it is with you and I. We are in charge of our own attitude. Have you ever felt like other people have been in charge of your attitude? I was forced to do it. They made me do that. They, if they weren't so mean to me, I wouldn't have lashed out. If, they, if I didn't be in this dismal circumstance, I wouldn't be so gloomy. We, we sometimes think that attitudes are foisted upon us. No, no. God's saying, and Paul's saying here, have a specific attitude. Now, Paul doesn't think this is a minor concern because he leads his whole discussion about the humility of Christ and about his glorification and exaltation with this thing called attitude. So, how is your attitude today? Are you thinking about life like God wants you to think about life? Or are you thinking differently? How about your family? How about your job? You have a good attitude about your job? But I don't like my job. That's not the question. What's your attitude? I think as we look at this, Paul is telling us to have a God-glorifying kind of attitude. It needs to be like 
a particular attitude and it's like that of Jesus now do you know you can do the wrong uh, the right things with the wrong motives the wrong attitude Um, do you know that God knows what your attitude really is so I think it was Pastor Phil that gave this example years ago I, I probably get it wrong but it's close of a man wants to come home and give flowers to his wife for her anniversary and he walks in the door and he says here and she says what are these for because I have to it's expected doesn't that just warm the heart doesn't that make her want to have a romantic response or if you say I have to kiss you do I have to? Okay. <laughs> that really just tickles your heart, doesn't it? God knows when we're doing things because we want to or because we have to. When you come up and you pull your wallet out and you go, will God receive it? Sure. Do you get credit for it? No. He knows your heart. He said, give willingly, not out of compulsion. The whole point, it's all about attitude. It's your heart. What's your motive? Well, simply the motive of Christ is humility. And it says that this verse says, have this attitude in you. Now that's not an option, by the way, people. Have this attitude is an imperative command. It's non-optional. It's required. This is what we should do all the time. And it's in the present tense, which I understand to mean it means all the time. Presently, wherever you are present, this is your present attitude. As you wake up in the morning, this is your attitude. As you go to bed at night, this is your attitude. As you go to work, this is your attitude. As you deal with your kids when they're messing up, this is your attitude. You have no vacation from this attitude. You don't have a break to say, well, I get to have a little reaction over here and then I'll come back to my attitude. That's not what this means. And Paul is instructing us, we need to have the attitude of humility. It's a high bar. It's the attitude of humility of Christ. See, only by God's power will we ever pull this off. This is not a matter of positive thinking. You will never have the attitude that Christ wants in your life just by willpower. It won't happen. You need to have a transformation in your heart done by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit giving you power to live this way. We need to depend on him to live this way. So now the question comes down. If we're supposed to be this Christ-like person person in life, What was Christ's attitude like? Well, we know that Satan's attitude was he wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God as opposed to Christ, who was God. There was no box higher on the universe's org chart than his. And he went down not only to be a man, which was an incredible step down, but also a servant man, a poor man, man, a persecuted man, a suffering man, a man who would face not only death, not by quick execution, but by the cross. This is the greatest dichotomy of pride versus humility ever recorded. Our Jesus started higher than anyone and ended lower than anyone ever. It will not be. This is our example So as we look at this, we see, and Paul fleshes that out in verses 6 through 8. He was God. You can't get higher. And he let it go. He did it selflessly. He did it voluntarily. It said he emptied himself. He was not forced to be emptied. These things are the things we should be modeling people. So how is your selflessness? Are you, are you about other people and God's will and goal for your life other than your own comfort and ease? This is how he's asking us to behave. How about the next one? He took a form of a bondservant. How are you at condescending to be low, to be thought low, to act low? I heard the test of, be, of having a servant's heart is how you react when you're treated like one. 
Do you really have a servant's heart? You could say, well, I serve all the time at church. Well, what if somebody treats you like a servant? Do you stiffen up a little bit? Jesus did not. Well, how about condescendingly? He lowered himself in verse 7, became a bondservant, and he said he humbled himself. He was obedient to God's will. He was submissive. God did not force him to the cross. It says he humbled himself and went to the cross. A lot of people say, well, God, you know, was mean to his son. No way. His son volunteered for the mission. Is that you? Do you volunteer for suffering? That's not something I like. I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit's going to have to make me like suffering. It's not natural to me. So now, as we appreciate that nobody has gone from higher to lower in history, what should our attitudes be then? We'll finally realize in the service of God our King that there's nothing that God will ever call me or you or any of us to do that will be beneath us. There will be nothing that we could be asked to do at church or with our friends or with those we're trying to reach as a brother and sister. There's nothing that we'll ever be asked to do that is beneath our dignity. That's too low for me. Do they really know who I am? I mean, I'm the pastor. I shouldn't be asked to clean floors. Here's what we should get. Every one of us in this room should never have our backs stiffen up, our hearts pucker up and say, not for me because I'm better than this. Anything, whether we hand out flyers, we set up chairs, we sweep floors, even if God asked you to clean the toilets of Valley Bible Church, that should not be beneath me. And it should not be beneath any one of you. This is the servanthood of Christ. Now, if we were serving with that attitude every day, what would this place look like? We'd be knocking each other out of the way to be the one to be able to do the dirty jobs. Remember this TV show? Was it Dirty Jobs? Is that what it was called? Mucking out sewers, whatever. Jesus went farther than any dirty job that we can ever imagine. And he is our example. So what excuse would you give? Jesus, that was a little low for me. No, there is nothing too low. Well, let's look at the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 to 11. I think we'll break it out in three parts. One, we'll see how high he was exalted in the preeminence of Christ's exaltation in verse 9. We'll discover the purpose of Christ's exaltation in verses 10 and 11, the beginning and third, the praise resulting from Christ's exaltation. But before we dive in, I want to just do a general observation here. It says at the beginning in verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted. And what reason? We just read them in verses 6 to 8. This humility, humility of our Lord Jesus Christ was recognized by God the Father. And he, God has now presented a principle do you see that? For this reason, he exalted him. To the degree that Christ was willing to be humbled, that is the same degree to which God can exalt. To the degree of humiliation is the degree of exaltation. No create, created person or creature has ever humbled himself like Jesus, and no one will ever be exalted as Jesus. He is in a different category. So if we would desire to be exalted by God, to be used by God, to be put in places of authority and influence and ministry and impact for the kingdom of God, what does it tell us? It says the only way to do that is down and be humbled. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. Do you believe that? Because if we do, we will head down and not up and trust the exaltation to Christ. God says he would do it. Is he a liar? He sure is not. 
Now, we may not see it. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1856 said it this way. If Christ was exalted through his degradation, so shall you be. Count not your steps to triumph by steps upward, by those which are seemingly downward. The way to heaven is downhill. The one who would be honored forever must first sink in his own self-esteem and often in the esteem of his fellow men. Do you want to go up? The way is down. That's what Jesus demonstrated to us all. We all kind of want to get put on a pedestal and, and admired and looked at in a positive way. God says that way is outdo everyone in humility and service. And I will exalt you. Now, does that mean when we do that, we automatically get lives of ease and comfort and uh, success as the world would define it? Absolutely not. In fact, that surrender to God's will may mean you're abused and killed as a martyr. See, John Piper said that suffering is not just the price, it's the path of our obedience. When we follow Christ and do as he did, we can expect that our humility and our submission will take us through times of loss and suffering and pain, just like our master. We're not guaranteed beds of ease. But he says, obey, trust me, and I will exalt you. Now, what we have to realize is that it's the same thing for all of these ease. We'll never do any of the ease without humility. Humility and stooping and serving is the only path to greatness. Jesus said the same in Matthew 20, 26. But let's look at the three points. The preeminence of Christ's exaltation. Beginning in verse 9, we see the phrase, for this reason also God highly exalted him. Well, we remind that we just talked about this reason is his willingness to be more humble than any person has ever been in the universe. No one will ever equal this demonstration of humility, but it's what we all should aspire to pursue. Now, he said, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Now, highly exalted, actually, I learned I had studied, highly exalted is actually one word in the Greek. It's a verb modified by a prefix. Now the verb is exalt, which means to lift up, to raise up. And the prefix is there to provide emphasis, special attention. Just kind of like if you were texting someone and said, could you come now? And you get to the word now, and in your text you write capital N, capital O, capital W, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's what this prefix is here to do. And the prefix is hooper, which we get in our language as hyper. So Jesus was not just exalted, he was hyper exalted. Not just exalted, and he's so he went above, and not just above, but so far above, you can't even see the next thing. Jesus is way, way, way exalted. That's what this is. His humility, God says, oh no, I'm not just bringing you up here. I'm going to exalt you above everything that's even close. He is way exalted. Now, what's that mean? There's no one in his class. Is he worthy of our praise? Absolutely. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one close to Jesus. Jesus is by himself. Now, the interesting thing is there were four steps, I think, in God's exaltation of Christ. And we can go through them really quick. One, his life on earth was really nothing but humility, more humiliation than more humiliation until he was in a grave. That's where his obedience originally landed him. But we read that God said he's never going to abandon him to a grave. And the first step up out of his exaltation was his resurrection. It says, Paul, I mean, the Peter said at Acts 2, you killed him, but God raised him up. First step up out of that exaltation path is his resurrection. 
And he was not just a man. He was a man that went to second step. He was ascended into heaven. God sent two angels to attend him. It says, son, come back up here. You're coming back up to heaven with me, up to glory. And he had those angels tell those disciples, what are you looking at? This same Jesus that you saw go will come again. Third step, his enthronement. He just didn't go up to heaven and hang around. According to what we read, he went up to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. According to Ephesians 1.10, uh, one twenty, it says this, they, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There is no other place of honor or power like where Jesus sits. Psalm 110.1 says, The Father is enthroned His Son. The Lord says to my Lord. God the Father said to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Now, his, now he's been resurrected. He's ascended. He's been enthroned. What waits? His coronation. His receiving His power, His crown of authority for all eternity. He has been crowned. And in fact, he has been invested with all authority. He even told his disciples in Matthew 28, after his resurrection, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Now, that means all authority. That doesn't mean some authority, most authority, the authority that no one opposes me. This is all authority. There is no authority other than Jesus' authority. There is none. In fact, Jesus told this when government tried to exercise their authority and he told Pilate in John 16, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Parents, do you think you have authority? Did you know it's a delegated authority from Jesus? This is Jesus' authority you wield in your home. Are you wielding it like Jesus? Is he happy how his authority is being used? In your home? How about business owners? The ones that bosses, they think they can fire you on a dime. Whose authority are they under? Jesus's. Your boss can do nothing without the authority of Jesus Christ. We have a sovereign God. His will is not opposable. Jesus doesn't say, well, I hope this happens. No, what he says happens. Every time. Now, as we look at this, we read in, in Ephesians 1, 21 and 22 that he was seated in the right hand of God, it says in the heavens, far above, vastly above, infinitely above, all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named. There isn't a name that has more power or authority than Jesus. Cry out a name, any name. Doesn't cut it. No false God's name. Baal, Buddha, name one. No, no power. The power is in Jesus. The, he has the name that's above every name. But it says not only in this age, but in the age to come, it will forever have that power. And he will put all things in subjection under his feet. And God gave him as head over all things to the church. You mean Jesus is in charge? of this church? Well, he better be. And this is how he rules, right here. Our Savior wrote this, the Word of God, and this is his authority, and so men who treat this and treat this as precious, this is truth. There is no truth other than this truth. This, thy word is truth. It doesn't say thy word is one of the truths. This is it. This is the only truth we have, and we exercise that. So if we think, even in church, like ours, what wants to do the right thing, do we think that we exercise authority independently of our Jesus? We might have congregational rule in some churches, or maybe even elder rule, or men that get together decide what the church should do. Does that have any power or effectiveness? It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Jesus is the only authority in this church. 
It is. It's the only, it's the only one you should trust. We try to follow what Jesus said. If we're not following what Jesus said, we're not following his authority and you should leave. Jesus is the authority of this church. He's preeminent. This is why we must preach Christ and Christ crucified. Christ is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing. Do you know that for Christ, with this authority, there is no prayer too hard for him to answer? There's no circumstance he cannot change. There's no sinner he cannot save. There is no enemy he cannot conquer. There is no dire situation to which he cannot bring hope and healing. Jesus is the exalted one and holds the highest place in this universe, and he holds all authority, and if he does the word, it is done. May we never forget... That we never forget who it is we are exalting. This is no some weak God. This is the supreme being of all. We got to remember that sometimes our Jesus gets too small. Oh, he doesn't know about this circumstance. Oh, I guess he's not going to fix this. Oh, our whining is terrible. I wonder if he's really, a, I wonder what he really feels about our whining. Because uh, it doesn't say to whine before God. It says to cry out. And cry out really means I need you to help me, not I'm just complaining. Our Jesus, I think there was a book, Your Jesus or Your God is Too Small. You got to remember who your God is. He's big. Well, the purpose of Christ's exaltation, verses 10 and 11. I love it. This verse 10, it begins with, so that, kind of gives you the clue. He's going to explain something here. Why, or the purpose of why God exalted Jesus. And what's the purpose? And he says the words following so that are, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. See, that's incredible. Yeah, you can clap. This is why we're here, people. Jesus is Lord. See, I don't think we have the name that's above every name yet. Jesus was a common name. And there are probably going to be many Jesuses when we get to heaven. But there's something that we're going to learn later in verse 11, what makes his name above every name. Well, we read that uh, the two purposes given, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Do we see this happening yet today? Do you see everybody bowing their knee to Jesus today? Sometimes we have trouble bending our knee to Jesus. I don't think the world is doing it. But one day, clearly they will. So Paul is talking about a future time here, a last day. There's going to be a scene where every created being will be bowing before this Jesus everyone. The only one on the whole scene that has the permission to stand will be Jesus. Everyone else will be down on their faces. Wow. See, to bow the knee really just implies several things. We're not talking just about posture. We're not talking about being in a specific bend. Bowing in this sense is acknowledging one who is greater, worshiping the one who is greater, submitting to the authority of the one who is greater. That's what we should be doing when we come and bow down. We're not just recognizing, yeah, you're, you're Lord. No, there's something that's got to go on in your heart. You're recognizing, I'm going to worship this one. I'm going to serve and obey this one as my Lord. That's what bowing implies. The psalmist expressed that same thing in Psalm 95, 6. He said, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. What does that imply? That means we're here to do your will, not ours. 
We're here to worship you, not us. We're not the ones that are good and cool and have a great band. You're the attraction. You're the one who's great. You're the one worth adoring and obeying. That's what the bowing means. Well, but you know, on that day, we're not just going to have the believers bowing, but every created creature will kneel and bow. And God gives a lot of categories here of who's going to bow. He wants to make sure that you know there will be no exceptions. Believe it or not, if you haven't bowed your knee yet to Christ and you think you are the exception that will need to do this, I'm sorry. There are no exceptions. Everyone will bow their knee. In fact, he says in heaven, there's going to be the angels who never fell. There's going to be those that resur resurrected saints or redeemed saints who are in heaven. They will bow on earth, there will still be some when Jesus comes on this last day that will still have faith in God. There will be some that do not trust in God. They never wanted God. They rejected God. They have no faith in God. And there are the demons that are still running around on earth. And below the earth, that be everybody who's ever died and said, I don't want you, God. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to put my faith in Jesus. I don't want anything to do with what you are about. I want to do this my own way. Even they, it says, everyone, even that hardness of heart in rebellion against this great God will one day acknowledge and bow their knee to Jesus. The question is, we need to make sure we do it now. Those that know you should do it now. We get to cut the line. We don't have to wait till the end. We can do it now. We can worship. What else does it say in verse 11? It says that the second purpose is that not only every knee will bow before this exalted king, but every tongue will vocally confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the name that Jesus will have that's above every name. It's not just Jesus or Jesus. It's Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Now what does that mean? In, the, in this verse here, Lord has two connotations. One, it means deity like Adonai in, in the Hebrew and Kurios in the Greek. This means this is deity. We're talking not about a great man. We're talking about God. And it's going to be finally revealed to all time that this God, this Jesus, has forever been God. There was never a time he was not God. Even as a sperm joining with an egg in Mary's womb, he was God. How small can God shrink? Pretty small. But he was God. Now, what's this tell us? Well, what's, you know, Lord is not only deity, but there's a sense of this that if you remember in Nero worship or, or emperor worship, they tried to proclaim and unify the Roman Empire by saying the emperor was a god. And so they would require everyone once a year to come before the public officials and an altar of incense and cry out, Caesar est curios. Caesar is God. There's a problem. Christians were still required to do this. And they would show up. Not all probably. Some probably had cowardice. But most said, no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus as curios. And they suffered by maybe losing their lives. But they stood for Christ. Because he is the one and only one exalted to the position of Lord, God and sovereign. That means he's also in charge. The question is, I think some of us have a Jesus that we like, not the Jesus that he is. We're all going to cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord, some by force at the end of time and some voluntarily now. But I think there's a problem here. Some of us have a Savior Jesus, 
but not a Lord Jesus. And it saddens me because there are some that want to do their own thing. They never have agreed to submit to his lordship, to do his will, to obey. They just want fire insurance. I'm not sure these people know the real Jesus because my Jesus is not only Savior, but he's curious. He's Lord. He's God. He's my master. He's the one that gets to tell me what to do. See, that's why Romans 10, 9 is so important. When you read it, we, it, the Bible's clear on who you're trusting. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Savior. Is that what it says? No, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus has curios, he is Lord, he is your master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need to make sure who we're trusting in here. This is Lord Jesus. In fact, Acts 16.30, when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Kurios. And you will be saved, you and your household. So have you bent your knee to Jesus? Not just want his forgiveness. We need to do both. We need to say, I want you, Lord, so much that I will serve you. I will, this, is the, this is what I know it requires when I really understand who you are and what you're offering me and what your forgiveness can give me. I need to adore. I need to bow. You have my life. It says your life is not your own, I think. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is what we're called to do. Well, I just think some of us are not going to like if we've never bowed our knee to Jesus yet. We will. And our own vocal cords will be used to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. The praise from Christ's exaltation. Why? For the glory of God the Father. You see, to confess and submit one's life to the Lordship of Christ is the single most greatest glory that can ever be given to the Father. Our confession of the Lordship of Christ is the peak. When, we, when mankind finally bows his rebellious knee in adoration and submission to this King Jesus, that gives God the Father great pleasure and glory. That's what this is saying. That all these people bowing before the throne and declaring the Lordship of Christ is glorifying to the Father. I mean, we might not understand that, but some of us who have kids might understand a little bit of it. I you know, I've had a few successes. God allowed me a few successes, not many, in my scholastic career and my growing up. And I have some accolades here and there, and I've lost them all in the dust. But I, I have to tell you that I get no greater joy than when my kids do well. When my kids remarkably bring home a straight-A report card, I'm astounded and I'm filled with joy. When I see them playing at a recital and I'm doing well and I elbow, I want to elbow the parent next to me, that's my girl, that's my boy, that's them. Right? When they are following after Christ, when they're trusting Him, reading their word, obeying Him, wanting to serve Him, I have no greater joy. This is what, multiply this a million times, a million times, a million times, a squillion. This is the heart of our faithful God who sees when we adore his son and say your son is Lord we give glory to the father he's waiting for us to glorify the father through the son both the son and the father share in that glory they're inseparable and he's calling us to have that heart to have our knee bent to declare not only with our mouth, but with our lives, with our obedience, 
with our service, with our humility. Jesus is my Lord. That's what we need to do. You know, everyone is going to be crying out, Jesus is Lord. And even now, I would encourage you, don't just do it in your head. Use your mouth, because you will. Be here in church and with us, help us proclaim the glories and the excellencies of Christ. He's worth it. He is Lord. So what's the lesson in light of this incredible passage that shouts of the humility that we can't even understand of a God who would become a man to die for my sins. We can't, we can't get our arms around that. And then to see the resulting glory that God gave him and put in a position that we can't even see unless he let us. In fact, I, I, you got to picture this. When you picture your Jesus, do not picture him as a dirty carpenter anymore. According to John in the book of Revelation, his face was like brighter than the sun. This is an exalted Jesus that we now have that serves, that sits on the throne, that is our advocate, that intercedes with the Father on our behalf. This is the powerful one. You think he can't intercede effectively? You gotta be kidding me. This is the Jesus you should have in mind. So what's the lesson? For those that has not professed faith in Christ or their need of him. They haven't bowed, you haven't bowed your knee yet to him. Why would you wait one more moment? Have you not heard enough about what this Savior did to come all the way from glory, to die on a rugged cross so that he could pay for my sin and your sin, that we could have a relationship with this infinite God and that we could actually be the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have any sibling affection that, that's my brother. That's my brother. Look how he's done. This is, he's going to be in charge of the universe with glory and power. And that's, if you know Christ, your brother. But if you don't know him, How can you stay unresponsive? If you do not bow and accept the gracious gift of salvation of this humble king, what excuse will you give on that last day when you actually finally bow your knee and use your own vocal cords to declare Jesus Christ is and forever has been Lord? Don't wait. I would plead with you, do not wait. I don't want you to approach that scene without Christ. Because everyone who knows Christ will that, at that scene be bowing in joyful adoration and glory and happiness because we will be with our older brother forever and with God. For those who have made their Christ their Lord and you hear this message, you say, well, thank you for having such a wonderful God and big brother. But what do, what do I need to do? I think we need to do an attitude check. What's your attitude like? Is it consistently like Jesus? Sometimes like Jesus? Pray and ask God to reveal in you the motivations of your heart. Why do you do it? Do you come to church every Sunday because it's a mechanical thing? Because that's what you should do? Here. Here, God, I attended. I hope not. But check your heart and your motives and make sure that you don't consider any service for God in this fellowship or anywhere God might lead you as too far below you. There is no job he will ask you to do that he has not already humiliated himself so much farther than that that we have no excuse to say, that's not for me. I'm above that. Someone of my stature should never do that. Are you kidding? When you look at the example of our Savior, there's no one off the hook in this room. The second thing I think if you know Christ, don't neglect to worship and adore 
and bow your knee and humble yourself and obey this Lord and Master and start now. You will do it with everyone else at that scene. But you have a chance to do it now and God can see the heart's desire that I may not do it right all the time, God, but I love you. I want to serve you. I want to adore you. And there's nothing you can ask me that's too far below me. It's not my job description because I saw what my Jesus did for me and I'm ready to do anything. I hope today you will not neglect to remember how great a Savior you have, how high and lifted up he is, how worthy of our exaltation he is. That throne room song we sang, I almost cry every time I sing it because we will bow down and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and will be. Well, I will just leave you with this. We don't have to wait to humble ourselves. Come, let us worship church and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, and let him be God in our life. Heavenly Father, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at the sacrifice of the humility of the condescension of my Lord Jesus. I can't match it at all but I see that your word tells me that that should be where I'm aiming. That should be my goal. Change me. Let me have the humility of Christ in my life that I will serve you first, others second, and me last. Father, for those that don't know you, May today be the day of salvation. May they not put off this decision one more minute. We know they will bow. Let them bow now before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.